For anybody that doesn't know, Ricky Prohl is the person I have the honor of interviewing today. I've interviewed Kevin Carter, one of his former teammates. I've interviewed a couple of the players he's trained. And as someone who's played 17 seasons in the NFL, you have the fifth most games played as a receiver in NFL history. You've played in the slot. You've played in the outside. You've played against almost every type of defense in the NFL. And I've had the pleasure of watching you train tight ends. I've watched you train receivers with all different types of skill sets and different body types. And a major discussion heading into this Super Bowl, major discussion during the regular season, especially on the internet and definitely in NFL media, has been Cooper Cup's production. From your perspective, to what extent has his production solely reliant on his ability to get free releases from the slot or just playing the slot in general compared to the outside? Cooper is is a, an outstanding wide receiver. I think uh, not just physically, but mentally. I mean, he's probably, I'd probably put him up against anyone as far as one of the smartest football players in today's game, especially at the receiver position. And that's what enables him to do what he does. I think McVay understands what kind of player he is and he puts him in a position to be successful. And and obviously he gets a tremendous amount of targets. And I think a lot of people, that's a, the biggest discussion. I mean, he probably averages, I think someone's saying 15 targets a game, but it's because of his knowledge of the game and understanding of concepts and defenses and what they're trying to do. And I think he's a coach on the field and McVay understands that. So McVay, He's his, I mean, he's his go-to guy because he knows that Cooper is a smart football player and he's going to make the plays when he needs them. And that's, as a, as a coach, that's an amazing tool to have. The more tools you have in your toolbox as a coach, I mean, now with Odell Beckham really coming on, getting Akers back to running back, uh, Higby, who is, is uh, a tremendous tight end, has really shown a lot of growth this year in his production. And Van Jefferson, a young guy who's really can make plays as well. But Cooper is the mainstay that when they need a play, when they need a big play, they go to Cooper. And, and you, can't, you can't take that from him. Is it easier in the slot? Do you get more freedom, more free space to run? Yes. But still, you got plays. you got to get open. you got to make the catches. And he's been able to do that consistently all season long. So like you kind of just alluded to near the end there, and a lot of people talk about how the other team's number one corners don't necessarily follow him inside to the slot, and he gets some of those free releases. From all of your experience playing and coaching in the NFL, how come teams sometimes aren't as willing to slide their number one corner in to press the slot receiver, whether that be Cooper Cup in this specific example or when the Packers slide Devontae Adams inside? It's, um, it's a great question, Tristan. It's, um, you look around the league, some of your best corners, and, and a, lot of these, a lot of these guys, the, the scouting departments, the GMs, the coaches are looking for those big physical guys to play on the outside that can, can help support in the run game to stop the run game, but can also stop some of these big receivers. He's six, five receivers, six, six receivers, but not everybody has that starting corner. That is your number three corner. And a lot of times those guys are the best nickel guys are a lot of the smaller stature guys. There was five, 10 guys, five, 11 that can, that are really quick. that can move laterally because it's harder. It's harder. Just like it's easier to play in the slot as a receiver. It's harder to play in the slot as a defensive back. Because that receiver has two-way goes. You can't use the sideline to your advantage and shade a guy to force him to the sidelines. It's, it's the middle of the field. You're, it's, it's, 
it presents itself such an advantage for the receiver, and it's hard to find DBs that can do that. They're out there, but there's they're few and far between, and that's what um, a lot of those starters on the outside because of these defenses and how they're made up to have big physical guys on the outside that can stop the the Higgins, the T Higgins, who are big, the Mike Evans. I mean, look at Jalen Ramsey. He's probably, what is he, top two or three cornerbacks in the league. He'd have a hard time playing inside just because of his build and his stature. So I hope I've answered your question, but a lot of times it's hard for those guys to go inside because of their stature. Why do you think Sean McVay has chosen to, to put Cooper Cup in the slot almost every single time. And how successful do you think Cooper would have been if he was utilized more on the outside? You have more plays inside than you can from the outside. Outside, you got a lot of your, your traditional routes, whether it's a curl, a nine stop, a comeback, a go route. And it, it does, it makes it more difficult. They can go cover two and get your hands on those receivers. It, it, it's a lot more work on the outside to beat cover two, to beat man coverage than it is on the inside. Because like I said, you got you can run shallow crosses, deep overs, you can run corner routes, you're you're in such a wide open space. And, and I think if he had to play on the outside more, it, it takes a lot more out of you physically. And I think also Cooper gets those opportunities because Cooper's been there. Cooper is one of McVay's draft picks. He's been consistent for two, three years now. And I think he's, he's just his go-to guy. He's been there longer. Not to say that next year, if they sign Odell back, he won't get more targets because I think he will. I mean, anybody, I mean, Odell has done a tremendous job of coming in midseason, learning this offense, and you can see his progression over the last three to four weeks, how much how much more he's been involved, how many big plays he's made. He's a huge contributor now, and I think that's just going to make them more dangerous next year if they decide to bring Odell back. But Robert Woods, I mean, Cooper wasn't getting as many reps with Robert Woods and Brandon Cooks, but when you have the one guy that, He's been there. You feel comfortable as a coach when you dial up numbers because Cooper's so comfortable with this offense and feels so good about what he's doing and he's playing with so much confidence. It's hard not to just feed him the football and put him in a position to where he can make plays. And a lot of those plays are from the inside. It is kind of wild when you look at how the receiver room has developed over this season. Obviously, Cooper Cup has been there the entirety of the year. And then, unfortunately, they lost Robert Woods when Odell came in. But Deshaun Jackson was even in the receiver room at the beginning of the season. But you also also spoke about how the slot allows you to get to different parts of the field. And obviously, all different types of routes are targeted at getting deep on the defense or across the middle or setting up the defense defense in the red zone. And I've learned so much from watching your training sessions, especially just the other day when you were working with Mike and Canell, you went over the sale route and how to set up the DB inside to then get over the top, especially against the cover two. And it has definitely enhanced my level of understanding of how offenses work in the NFL, watching your training sessions with a wide variety of receivers from every different level, high school, college, and even professional. So what do you think is the biggest thing the average NFL fan doesn't understand about how the offenses work in the NFL, whether it be timing, route concepts, and what do you think is the most misrepresented piece of the wide receiver position in the media, whether it be major media outlets or smaller ones? I think it's, it's, Understanding the concepts and understanding guys like Cooper, Odell, some of your great receivers, um, the Mike Evans that, you know, has had a consistent career. It's Devontae. It's being where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be. It's all timing. And Sometimes if you're running a sale route, you don't want to run it 100 miles an hour because you got a guy on the outside that's clearing the zone out for you. You're flooding a zone and he's clearing out for you. So you don't want to be 100 miles an hour 
and get to your spot too fast because the quarterback is either isn't ready to throw yet or that receiver on the outside hasn't had the opportunity to clear that guy fully yet, that corner, get him out of that zone, get him out of that area where they're trying to throw the football. So it's little nuances like that, that the concepts of the timing of the routes and receivers understanding the timing and when that clock goes off, when they have to be where they're supposed to be that the, the quarterback expects him to be at certain spots so he can deliver the ball on time or he's taking a play action fake to the running back and then he's dro- getting his drop and then hit step and then he's delivering the football. So all those things play a part in making a play successful. And I think a lot of your normal fans don't understand that, you know, hey, why doesn't he get rid of the ball? Well, he got pressure and he couldn't get rid of the ball because the receiver didn't have enough time. They disrupted up front to where now he's got to change the pocket changes and he can't deliver the football like he wants to. And now it changes. It changes the concept of the route. Now it's a broken play. And it's those things that I think your, your normal fan doesn't understand the complex offenses and what, what everybody has a job, even if they're all, sometimes you're a decoy. You're just, your, your job is to occupy certain players, whether it's a safety, whether it's a linebacker to get their attention, to open up a window for someone else. And I think there's so much that goes into it that a lot of people don't understand. And for a quarterback, it all happens in a split second. It's all within three seconds. That's what makes this game so, so great, unbelievable to me. Was there ever a point in your playing career or coaching career where the game plan was set up a certain way, the head coaches and offensive coordinator were making certain decisions and there was a type of narrative in the media or even maybe uh, extended friends or family around you where you were not getting the ball or the offense wasn't operating like it could be. Is there a specific moment that you look back to when it relates to that type of question? Well, as a coach, absolutely. And I'd rather not, I'd rather not share because it's <laughs> Under the bus, but yes, it happens quite often. Just to give an example, like, you know, if you're a team that likes to take, get chunk plays, those chunk plays are deep plays, you know, 20, 30, 40 yard throws are big plays. And, you know, I've been on teams as, as a player and as a coach to where we got chunk plays and that was a big part of our offense. But sometimes you have to make adjustments. If you're playing a team that has two great rush ends, you got to be smart. You got to you got to change your game plan because if those guys are coming up the field, you're not going to have time to throw those seven step drop, 20, 30 yard pass plays down the field. And sometimes you got to wear those guys out. You got to throw a quick game, get the ball out, get the ball out because they're coming up the field. And eventually they lose their steam. They lose their, their mental state of pinning their ears back and coming for the quarterback. If the ball's out every time they take, take a couple steps and the ball's out, now they're not coming as hard. And then you take your drops. And I think as a player, sometimes not to say these coaches are unbelievable what they do in, in figuring mm-hmm. out games. Sometimes you have to make adjustments. And if you have a, hurt, a left tackle that's hurt or not 100% and you got Vaughn Miller coming off the edge, you know, it's, it's like the Rams. Like Cincinnati better have a plan of getting the ball out, especially early on. Wear those guys out, try to establish a run game to slow, you know, slow that great front four down so you can really get some plays down the field. But sometimes you just got to that's what Tom Brady has done a great job throughout his career is dinking and dunking, dinking and dunking. And then when it presents itself, he takes a, a deep shot and, and he's had a lot of success. I'm, I'm surprised more coaches don't mimic what the new what New England did and then 
what Tampa does, just watching Brady and how he takes what the defense gives him. Well, I think it also speaks to Tom Brady that he's did it with two different teams then eventually so late in his career and that no one else has been able to replicate that type of success over two decades. And you mentioned earlier, I also agree, it's very true that there's multiple ways an offense can be successful. There's multiple ways for a player to be successful. So many different releases that players will use on different routes. And the wide receiver position, I think, is more dynamic than and a lot of people understand. I think even sometimes it appears that talent evaluators look at the receiver position. And over the last five, seven years, and of course, over the course of NFL history, I think we've seen a lot of receivers who didn't necessarily live up to expectations. And in recent years, we've seen DK Metcalf get passed up on in favor of Andy Isabella, JJR Siegel Whiteside, Nikhil Harry, receivers who haven't lived up to their expectations and definitely draft position. Whereas DK Metcalf looks like he's one of the top 20 receivers in the NFL. And just recently, Jalen Rager was picked over T Higgins and Justin Jefferson. So you even have the insight as a coach, as well as a player. Why do you think it seems like the front office, and I've also heard you tell stories about certain receivers that you wanted to draft, but the front office wasn't necessarily too high on. So why do you think it's such a hard position for the front office to evaluate where it seems like in retrospect, it's always so obvious that Justin Jefferson was maybe the better pick over Rager? I think a lot of it is, some of these, some of the scouts fall in love with guys. They followed them throughout their career, and they may have had a great career in college. And they just, they, it's like anything. You, you meet someone, you get to know them, you fall in love with them, not just as a football player, but as a person. And, and I think a lot of these guys, have, these scouts that are at these these schools for years, and they get to know some of these kids. But I think, to me, to be successful, you got to have management, whether it's scouts, GMs, and coaches on the same page. They got to have a relationship where they, the GMs and the scouts understand the offense. They understand the defense, um, you know, and what your scheme is and what kind of player you're looking for, whether it's in the slot outside, what kind of offense are you running? That's going to, is going to bring in a player that's tailor made for your offense. I think that's a huge component. I look at the Rams team that I was on, you know, you had Isaac and Tori on the outside and you had me and Oz on the inside. We were all interchangeable. But at the end of the day, we were all smart football players to where we could play any one of each other's positions. So that's why now all of a sudden we may be running the same play, but we're at different positions. And so now they don't know what we're running because who knew where we were going to line up. And I think that was a huge component. But to answer your question, I just think guys look at certain players like a Justin Jefferson. He'd probably be successful wherever he plays. Guys like Metcalf, to, he, he, he landed in a perfect spot. He's here. He's in a system where he's big. He's strong. He's fast. There's not many guys that can throw the long ball like Russell Wilson. He goes somewhere else. He might not have the, the same stats and, and, you know, three years that he's had in Seattle. If he goes somewhere else where they're more ball control, run the football, play action, comeback, stuff like that. They did a gr- tremendous job of drafting someone that was fitted to their system. And I think there, there's teams out there that, you know, the general managers draft some guy because they love him because he's fast and he's, quick and he's got hands but maybe he's not a great route runner and the system that he works for they're all about route running and timing passes you've got to get guys that can can run certain passes and so the quarterback can get the ball out and, and some guys don't fit that some guys are just freelancers they're deep you know they're, they're mainly deep guys they're one horse one trick ponies that they're they're made to go deep and then there's the Tyreeks who can do a lot of stuff but they've that offense around Tyreek, because you look at it, it's not like you're seeing him run 
just regular comebacks, digs. He's running deep overs. He's running shallow cross, wide receiver screens. They've molded the offense around their players. And that's when you have success as a team is when you almost draft the guy and then you realize we got to do things to get him the football. We got to find ways to get him the football. And that's when teams are successful. We did that with Steve Smith at Carolina. Steve was a, an amazing football player that could, was so dynamic when he got the ball in his hands, but we had to find ways to get him the ball because he wasn't a great, he became a great route runner. Early on, he was the one that if, if it was a run play and the corner was off, turn around, Steve, we'll throw you the ball, and then it's a pump return. And he would stiff arm the guy and take it 60 yards for a touchdown. And those are the things that coaches, it's like, let's not make it more difficult than it needs to be. And I think those are the teams that have success. And that's why, you know, you go back to McVay and what he's done with Cooper and how he's slowly incorporated Odell more. And he's brought Higby in and now Akers. Akers is going to play a huge part in the Super Bowl. In Cincinnati, I mean, every no one talks. Zach Taylor was with the Rams back when they played yeah. the Super Bowl years ago. He was the quarterback coach. He knows a lot about this football team. But you look at what he's built. He's got a big receiver in T. Higgins. He's got Tyler Boyd in the slot. He's got Chase as one of the most dynamic receiver, if not the dynamic rookie receiver in NFL history. And now he's got and he's got a running back in Joe Mixon. I mean, if they if the defense can slow up the Rams, this could be a great a great football game because Cincinnati arguably has some weapons, you know, it's just a matter of, can they protect them up front? Well, the, the Titans certainly showed off the Bengals weakness. And I think a lot of people are calling Aaron Donald, one of, if not the greatest defensive player of all time. Now, I know you definitely would probably side on the guys of like LT and the Reggie whites of the world, (laughs) especially being a a Giants fan growing up. I will say this. I will say this. Kind of what we talked about in the slot. And I didn't play, you know, I didn't play defensive line, but it was probably a little easier for LT to come off the edge. Aaron Donald, to do it interior like that and bring the pressure that he does, he is absolutely amazing. He's he's unbelievable. And he may be right up there with LT. Is he better? I don't know if there's ever a better. LT changed the game. They started looking for LTs. I mean, you know, everybody was looking for a Lawrence Taylor off the edge and, and the Vaughn Millers, the, the Derek Brooks, all those guys, uh, he revolutionized the defensive uh, end position. Fortunately for Aaron Donald, as far as the mystique of greatest player of all time, edge rushers, I think, definitely pop off the screen to just everyone in general. You see them come off the edge, the tackle falls down, or they bull rush the tackle into the quarterback's lap. And then Aaron Donald sometimes has to deal with Quentin Nelson and the center on one play and then has to beat both of them. So he's not necessarily popping off the screen every single play, which... I think plays to the edge rusher's favor. And you kind of already answered this question already, but there's another element to it I wanted to ask. It seems like a situation can have a great effect on a player's career, especially their short-term success. Have there been any players that you've known playing with, coaching, that you've seen now in your post-career owning Prolific Park, where you feel like a situation just destroyed their career or just brought their career to another level that it would have gotten to if they were drafted into a, a worse team or a completely different offense. I think it, used, it you could use so many examples. Um, getting drafted to a, a good football team with good players to where they're gonna, you know, put you in a position to be successful. I mean, I think you can ask answer you, you can ask yourself the, the question: Would Cooper Cup be the same player if he went to? Jacksonville or if you went to the Texans um yeah you, you know you can add Justin Jefferson 
I think he'd be good anybody. But if you go to a team like the Jets, is he just, is he a first two year Pro Bowler? You know, is Chase goes to the Jets, is he a Pro Bowler? I don't know. I I think he's he's still at the end of the day going to be a good football player, but he's not going to be put up the numbers that he's put up this year. And and so I think and then, and then there's some players who they get buried. They go to certain teams and they're good football players, and they unfortunately get lost and they got to wait for that next contract to hopefully get out of there and land in a spot that they can, they can showcase their talents. And who is throwing you the ball also plays a great factor in your ability to produce on the field. Because when you have a Patrick Mahomes or in your case, a Kurt Warner, it definitely makes it a lot easier. And over the the first five seasons of your career, you play, you were drafted by the Cardinals. You played with the Cardinals, had over 3,800 yards, 21 touchdowns, but you also played from what I could find online in my research, you played with eight different quarterbacks over that five-year time period. What is that like when you, there's almost two quarterbacks every single season, whether one starting one game, one starting six games, what is it like week in and week out preparing with a different quarterback and not necessarily knowing Kurt Warner's our guy the entire year when there's more continuity at the quarterback position? It's diff- It's difficult. I think, you know, looking back, it was frustrating. You know, like you said, I played for, it may have been more than eight my first five years. I know I, the first time I played with a quarterback back-to-back season was Kurt Warner in 99 and then Kurt Warner again in 2000. I caught passes for over 23 quarterbacks over 20 quarterbacks caught touchdowns from 17 but I look back now and and the first 10 years as much as it was it was tough the continuity was just you know trying to get the timing down and a different guy every year was hard but it probably made me who I was and and because what what I really realized was I had to be a great route runner I I had to I wanted that quarterback to know that I was going to be where I was supposed to be when I was supposed to be there and and I took great pride in, in trying to be one of the best route runners in the league just because I didn't know who was going to be throwing me the ball. And, and a lot of times we didn't have time. I wasn't on good teams to where we could protect for a long period of time. It was three step, five step at the most, get rid of the football, hitch and throw. And I, I just remember as a player watching Chris Carter run these deep overs with Minnesota and say, God, it'd be nice to have the time to be able to do those type of routes. I felt like we were constantly in quick games, slants, curl routes. Um, but you know, it, it was it was part of my journey. And, and I think, you know, as frustrating as it was, it probably it's probably why I played 17 years, because when I started having some continuity with quarterbacks, it became really a lot of fun. And we were, I was on winning teams and I didn't want to quit playing because it was so much fun because I'd lost for so many years. And when you're winning, you don't want to leave the game. It, it, it becomes easy. Yeah, it, 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 it's tough. It's tough on anybody. I feel sorry for some of these guys that struggle. Quarterbacks get hurt and they got backups and then they got they get hurt. There's some good football players out there that I know are frustrated. And uh, but that's that's it's part of the game. It's it's life. I mean, it's it's not just football. It's life. There's people out there that are struggling, trying to find their way. And, and But that's that's what the game teaches you is, is being resilient and battle back from adversity and just. You learn a lot about yourself playing this game for sure. Yeah, and to the point about how long your career wound up lasting, I I was watching the Brady documentary. It was either when he lost the undefeated season to the Giants. He spoke to the fact that he's not sure if his career would have wound up being as long as it was if it wasn't for that type of loss where had a chance at making NFL history and then just fell a couple inches short effectively. Those failures definitely seem to fuel players to be more successful or play a number of years you definitely you remember the heartbreaking losses more than you remember the 
the victories and the thrill of victory. Uh, it, you really do. The ones that we lost with the Panthers, and, you know, the Panthers especially, I, I felt like, you know, we had a really a good chance to win that football game. And we had Brady and, and the Patriots on the ropes. And um, unfortunately, you know, our kicker kicked it out of bounds. And now you, you give it to Tom on the 40-yard line. And it, it's, hard to, it's hard to stop him where all he needs to gain is 15, 20 yards. Well, Tom on the 20-yard line would have been scary too. <laughs> Yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe uh, in today's NFL, even a little scarier, considering we had Patrick Holmes go 40, 50 yards in 10 seconds. <laughs> with 13. Game change. So with your time with the Rams, that's where you played in two of your four Super Bowl appearances. And your first year there, the Rams were bad. They only won four of their 16 games. But then that following season is one of the most magical seasons in NFL history. It's one of the most referenced offenses in NFL history. What was that offseason like to where you went from a team that was maybe even made fun of in the media to what the team wound up becoming? And like I said, one of the most renowned teams, most referenced team names in NFL history. If you look at the years prior to the to the 99 season you look at 98 97 when dick got there you look at his draft picks from orlando pace to london fletcher grant wistrom tory holt dre bly roland williams dexter mcleon i look at and then the free agents ray agnew he brought in myself they had some nuclear some guys and then he had a method to his madness and he did an amazing job of we had fifth round draft picks robert hokum tony horn Isaac keem that turned into starters. I mean, you look at his draft picks those two years, these guys were impact players within two years. And then you go out and you bring some free agents. Um, you trade for Marshall Falk, draft Tory. You already have Isaac Bruce there. You bring in Trent Green. That offseason was electric. It was unbelievable. The work ethic changed. Uh, we, we Dick had us working hard, but now we started believing. You started looking around. It's Marshall Falk. There's Tory Holtz coming in, a well-polished rookie. You know, Isaac was getting healthy. You know, Isaac Keem was a dynamic receiver. We just, we were loaded with talent and we pushed each other. And I think the biggest thing that I look at that 99 team was, we looked around and we realized hey, we got some talent here. And especially the, with the addition of Marshall, Marshall was one of the smartest football players I've ever played with, but we were a selfless team. We became a selfless team, you know, and I think it was an adjustment. Isaac was catching 115 balls a year and he had to take kind of a, not a, a back, you know, to Tory, but it was more like, Hey, do you want to catch 115 passes and go four and 12? Or do you want to catch 85 balls and go to the Super Bowl and win? And, and, we realized how good we were as a unit, as a group playing together, that we didn't care who scored the touchdown, who got the recognition. We just wanted to win football games. And it became so much fun to where I think it was a video of a DB saying on the sidelines going, it's a track meet out there. These guys are all over. <laughs> yeah. And we took great pride in it. And, and uh, you know, obviously we rallied when Trent went down, we rallied around Kurt and we started out, you know, reducing our offense, but then he was able to take on more and more every week. And, and it was it was a special season that I'll never forget. We went from worst to first. And it was all those years of losing were erased when we won that year and how we won. And uh, it was a lot of fun because everybody had a role on our team. For me, I didn't score a touchdown all year until the championship. But my role was coming in and catching first downs and moving the chains. And, and I took great pride in that. And uh, 
you know, it was it was just a, a great group of guys, and it's tribute to Dick Vermeil. I mean, the kind of high character people he brought in and who he drafted. Something I'll never forget. It's something that I try to emulate and run in my business, and, and the people that I surround myself with, and who I hire, and who I bring in to help run different parts of my business you mentioned it the touchdown you had in the championship game I'm sure you've had to relive it thousands of times in interviews in the 20 years since that catch happened since that game happened what was going through your mind on that play to send the Rams to the Super Bowl effectively <laughs> did you have any thoughts of better not fuck this up when it's do you see the ball going through the air and going over your shoulder <laughs> I'll be honest with you you know when I took pride in, man, I, I wanted to be the guy, you know, I was, I was that guy that never shied away from wanting to make a play in a crucial time. That was, my nickname was clutch. Marshall nicknamed me clutch. Cause I would come in and make first downs. He goes, I don't, I don't think I, you know, what are you talking about? And he said, you come in off the bench, make first down. Everybody knew we were going to throw the ball to you. And then you come off and come back on. And so I, I just, to me, I knew I had to shield him off and I just said, go up and kind of, try to shield him away from the ball. The ball was a little underthrown, so I was walling him off and then just caught it over my shoulder. And it was a dream come true. You know, it was every kid's dream of growing up, dreaming about making the big catch to win the game, whether it's in the Super Bowl or for me, it was about helping getting my team to the Super Bowl. And it's something that it never gets old talking about it. It never, you never forget what I felt like or what it felt like to make that play and to see my family in the stands and, my teammates, it was just, uh, it was an amazing feeling. Now, who wound up getting to keep that ball? We saw Mike Evans throw Tom Brady's, was it 600 touchdown pass into the stands? Is that something you get to, do you know who has that ball? <laughs> I have that I have the ball. You do have it. I got it at home, yes. You know what also, what also ball that is sitting in a pizzeria that was just voted number one pizzeria in New, New Jersey, New York, and maybe even the country, Barstool's voted delicious pizzeria i probably shouldn't say this the super bowl ball that mike jones stopped kevin dyson yeah he knocked it out of his hands it was spinning in the end zone and when we all sprinted out in the field it was there i grabbed it that thing <laughs> yeah how did it wind up in the pizzeria because my uh my high school coach who was dying of cancer was in the stands and his best friend owned that pizzeria and i gave it to him oh. and he gave it to, they made a little showcase uh, my Super Bowl jersey and that football in the pizzeria. So playing in the Super Bowl is something almost 100% of people never get to experience. Playing in any championship, in any sport, most people never get to experience. People who are professionals in that sports most don't even get to experience. So what was it like to you've been in four. What was it like the first time you made it there to walk into the stadium pregame, then into the stadium when the game starts? What was that whole first experience like and just playing in the Super Bowl in general? It was um, it's it's everything that you imagined, everything you dreamed, everything you hoped it would be. It is. I mean, it just feels like you're faster, you're quicker. You get it's such an adrenaline rush coming out of that tunnel and then just being out there. I mean, when I played in my last one, when I was 38 years old, almost 39, I mean, I felt like I was 21 years old again. It, it just. It's an amazing feeling. It's it's nothing like it. You wish every player that played in the NFL could experience playing in the Super Bowl. It's that kind of adrenaline rush. And that's why Tom Brady, he'll tell you, I mean, you want to get back because it's it, it's it's an amazing experience. And it and it's like I said, you feel bad for the great players that 
never had the opportunity to play in it because they deserve to feel what it feels to play in the Super Bowl. It's absolutely amazing. That first Super Bowl was definitely a roller coaster from getting out to the 16 point lead. Then the Titans claw back and tie up the game at 16. And then you have Isaac Bruce answer right back with the 73 yard touchdown. And then they almost answer right back. You just mentioned the Kevin Dyson down to the one inch line, essentially. So what were your emotions like throughout that game as you get out to the big lead, then the lead evaporates, and then they almost even come back and send you guys to overtime. I was thinking, oh, my God, it's never easy. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> McNair was unbelievable. Talk, I mean, strong as an ox, breaking tackles, extending plays. Just watching him was like, tackle him. You know, we just – we were tired. Kevin Carter was tired. You know, our defensive front, people were giving it everything they got, but it was a, a, it was a long game that was just a, a, an unbelievable – fight and our defense was tired and, and McNair made plays and where our angle when he threw it to Dyson I thought he was in I thought he scored to be honest with you I thought maybe we were going to overtime and then when I saw the ref wave that game's over we all just went crazy and ran onto the field but it, it was um oh my god I, I can't imagine what my my heart rate was at that time I mean everybody was I mean we were just you know, when you can't, you have no control and you're just watching the defense and you're trying to cheer on your teammates to stop them. And that's off to the late Steve McNair and the Titans. I mean, they fought their tail off. And it, it just made you realize what you see. And I'm sure you saw last week in the championship game, a lot of teams, a lot of coaches get nervous when you get, especially as the game goes on and it gets tighter. A lot of them, they don't want to make a mistake. So they're not airing it out as much. They're, they, they stick closer to the vest. And, and I thought we did that. We got up to a 16-point lead. And we kind of sat on it a little bit. We we didn't we got a little conservative, and it ended up almost biting us in the tail. So you wound up winning that game. And next year you went to the championship. Unfortunately, lost in the championship, and then you eventually played in your second Super Bowl. When you look at those, the next two seasons, the second Super Bowl appearance where you fell short against the Patriots and you dominate during the regular season, and then from an outsider's perspective, it almost seems like the Rams dynasty was short-lived and didn't necessarily live up to expectations. When you take a look at the highest of highs going from nothing to the Super Bowl to then still dominant, but falling short in two seasons, why do you think that happened? And do you think there were even small things that could have been done to extend the Rams legacy or a greatest show on turf legacy and could have led to multiple Super Bowl wins? Yeah, I think we underachieved. I think I think the biggest component, to be completely honest, I think Mike Martz was one of the best offensive minds to ever coach the game. But I think he was his almost his own enemy, you know, uh, a worse nightmare. I think if Dick Vermeil stays and doesn't retire after the Super Bowl year, I think we go on and maybe win three in a row. I mean, our offense, you look at what our offense did for three years straight, I mean, was arguably the best, most prolific offense in NFL history. You know, sometimes you got to, you need a head coach to kind of pull the reins back and say, run the football. New England's dropping eight guys, run it. And I think we weren't as balanced. When Dick was there, we were more balanced. If you look back at that Super Bowl, we got the best tailback MVP, Marshall Falk, in the league. And I think, I don't know how many touches he ran the ball in the second half of that Super Bowl, but it wasn't enough. And and as a receiver, I want to catch footballs, but they're dropping eight guys, draw play. We need we needed to run the football more. And, and uh, we were a better football team in that season, but they were a better football team that day. And I think a lot of it was of what we did on that particular Sunday to lose the football game. And we didn't play our best football. And Pats go off. New England played a great game. But I don't necessarily think 
if they went out and won it, I think we just didn't – we lost the football game. You, of course, we've spoken a little about about Kurt Warner. And then in the last season of your career, you wound up playing with Peyton Manning. And we also spoke about the fact that you played with several different quarterbacks. What is it like playing with a Hall of Fame talent and quarterback in Kurt Warner or Peyton Manning? To me, to have the opportunity to play with Peyton Manning, I mean, Kurt was Kurt was unbelievable. I mean, to be a guy that could – his game, he didn't have the strongest arm. His game was timing. I mean, he, he understood the offense. He understand where the ball needed to be. I mean, if you stood behind Kurt, when he delivered a football, you'd be like, where, he, where is he throwing to? Who's he throwing to? And then all of a sudden you'd see Tory coming, screaming in there on a dig, dig, dig route, or you'd see me on a corner route or Isaac or Oz. And he was unbelievable in getting the ball out on time, throwing it to spots. And Peyton was a lot of the same. Peyton was probably the smartest football player I have ever been on a football field with. Marshall was one of them, but Peyton was probably – the smartest. He was a coach on the field. I mean, he understood what defenses were doing before they before he snapped the ball. He knew exactly what coverage they were going to roll into or go to. And he had the perfect play. Like he was just that's why he started ice cream, ice cream and Omaha, Omaha. And he snapped and he changed the play because he knew what coverage they were going to run. And he was and, and 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 a great teammate. You know, you think of Peyton, you think of stardom, great, you know, Hall of Famer. I signed there in November and he took me under his wing as a teammate where a lot of guys wouldn't have done that. You know, you come in, you're 11 and one and you're bringing this guy in because you've had some injuries. He called me. I was coaching Pop Warner. He called me on the phone. Where are you at? I thought we were signing. Yeah. I said, well, we haven't worked out the numbers. Well, I'm going to get it done. We're going to get you in here. He took notes on the way, you know, practice the Super Bowl week. He brought me, hey, Ricky, come here. Started taking notes. What's the Super Bowl week? What's media day like? What, what, what can I expect? I, I addressed the team. I talked. I mean, he was just an amazing leader, amazing football player. And a lot of people don't know. what. And, and God, I mean, he could probably act. He's, he's funny. Some of these shows, but he's just a great guy to be around. And it was, um, I, I was real fortunate to have the opportunity to play with him, even though it was only for a couple of months. And what is it like heading into that 17th year compared to heading into your first year or fifth year and sixth year? What was it like playing the position at an older age compared to when you were a rookie in the NFL? Well, I think the biggest thing is you understand the game. You understand when you got to turn it on, just kind of pacing yourself. And at that point they were, they were allowing me not to do – I had done two-a-days for 16 years. My last year, I didn't have to do two-a-days. Um, but it's just understanding you you got to stay in shape. you got to take care of your body to, to be able to play that long and play at a high level. But it was fun. When you're getting the opportunity to play with Peyton Manning, Marvin Harris, and Reggie Wayne, like, you're winning. Like, I I, I never forgot those years, 4-12, and 3-13. And, and now you're coming out as a playoff contender, Super Bowl contender. That's why you play the game. You know, um, to win, to get a shot at another ring. And I was fortunate to go out as a Super Bowl champion with the Colts. And, and, you know, to play in four Super Bowls in my last seven years, make it to the playoffs a ton of times where I didn't I didn't get play on national TV until my eighth year in the league. You relish those moments. It never got old coming out of the tunnel. It never got old just being a part of, you know, in my mind, the greatest game in our country. And, and uh, I loved it. And I didn't take it for granted. And you then made the transition to coaching and you coached six years with the Panthers right after your playing career. What was that transition like for you? And a lot of players say, I think Peyton Manning has said it before. A lot of players say that they don't feel like they could coach because they would 
get too worked up about their players not caring enough about the game or not putting forth the same type of effort or not necessarily not playing this same type of way they did. Was that something that was hard for you to overcome initially when you started coaching in the NFL? No, no, it, it really wasn't. I, I mean, I'm, I, I just, I'm a relationship guy and I think, you know, coaching is, is kind of like being a parent. You know, I know some coaches believe in, in treating everybody the same. And, and I think certain guys, you got to know how to push their buttons, how to, when to back off, when to get on them. Certain guys, you can, you can have your foot on their throat all the time and, and they're good at that. They want that. And then other guys, you can't do that because they'll shut down. I took pride in knowing each of my, my players and giving them the, the respect they deserve, but also putting them in a position to have success. And I think they knew that. And when you know that and you have that relationship, a player coach relationship, you can get everything out of your players. And, and that's what I tried to do is, is I took great pride in, in doing that because I just, I knew how as a player, how I wanted to be coached. And I knew I had different coaches. Some were great and some, I didn't like their delivery, how they, you know, some of the things they said or what, what, how they treated certain players. And I, I knew I didn't want to be that guy. And I think so playing for 17 years taught me a lot, prepared me for that moment as a coach. I think the toughest thing is the hours as a coach. It's a lot of long hours. It's a lot of stuff being said about players on, on headphones that, that really bothered me at first. And I kind of learned it's just their frustrations. It, it wasn't personal, but that was a tough transition for me, just hearing them talk about players and then act like they were, you know, but like I said, a lot of it was just frustrations and them wanting to execute. If a player didn't execute the way they wanted them to, or the way they practiced all week, uh, a lot of frustrations came out. Like you said, like Peyton said, why he couldn't coach. But for me, that was, that was never an issue with me. I, I just felt like guys are going to make mistakes as part of the game. I mean, it's the other guys get paid on the other side too. And, and you learn from your mistakes, you get better through your mistakes. And, and that, that's what my approach was. To the game as a coach is there anything in the future where you see going back to coaching whether it be is there any set of perfect circumstances where you see yourself heading back into coaching in the nfl or i've definitely i've seen you and you're very successful at it just doing coaching and training players at the college high school and nfl level outside at prolific or now when you go to la or when you went to florida is there any set of perfect circumstances where you see yourself going back to the nfl again well i've had some opportunities and and i've turned them down i'll never say never because i love coaching i love working with young people. I'm kind of getting that, that feel right now where it's, it's not coaching at the highest level, but it's preparing guys that want to play at the next level, whether it's high school kids wanting to play in college, college kids wanting to play in the NFL. And it's, it's very enjoyable, very, very rewarding. I love it. I love the park. So to get back into coaching, it would have to be a, a scenario of location where it's convenient, where I can check on the park, make sure things are going right. I've got getting ready to be a grandfather. I'm all about family. I'm all about a lot of my relationships. I'm at a point in my life where once you go to the other side and you have your freedom to have your own schedule and work fail off being your own boss and then do what you want to do when you want to do it, it's it's hard to to go back. But I, I would never say never. I love coaching. I love, I'm not afraid to to work 16, 17 hour days, but it it, it would be tough. It would have to be going back for a friend we're going back to a perfect scenario where it's a great place to live, great place to coach. And, uh, you know, maybe I don't have the day-to-day grind of prolific part. You've coached players from every level. You've played in, on every level. What do you think is the biggest mistake young athletes make? 
maybe even professional athletes as they look to get their chance in the NFL, prepare for the NFL, or even are looking to play at an elite division one program? I think a lot of guys will go out and train and they train hard, but it's kind of like studying for a test. Are you studying for what the things that you don't know, or are you studying for the things you already know? A lot of these kids are fast, but they're still working on speed. A lot of them have great agility. They're still working on agility. Some of them aren't great catchers. They need to work on catching the football, coming back, attacking the football. Some of them need to be working on their routes, working on the things that they're not good at to bring their level up, you know. And, and I think that's some of the things that I preach to a lot of the guys I train. You know, people ask me, who'd you throw with? Who did you? I said, I throw. I didn't throw with anybody. You know, I knew I could catch. I worked on running routes. Just me at Guilford College, just running routes on that, on that field, just I wanted to be the best route runner. I learned how to drop my weight and, and make everything look the same to where I could get in and out. And I didn't care who I was going up against. I was going to beat them because I was going to be a, such a great route runner. I wasn't going to give them any any inkling of a hint of what kind of route I was running. And, and um, you know, and, and that's what I worked on. I tried to watch film and look at the things that I needed to improve on, whether it was bump and run, releases, playing on the outside versus cover two. It was certain things that, you know, I think a lot of people will, will, will say, well, I was afraid to fail. That's why I, I felt like I'm a good player. I was never afraid to fail because that's how I got better. If I got jammed at the line or if I didn't run a great route, why didn't I run a great route? What happened to me here? What did, why did I get jammed? I didn't use my hands. I think that's why I was able to play for 17 years because I was constantly working on trying to improve, trying to get better. You know, your game changes as you get older. You're not getting any faster. So you've got to be more efficient in everything you do. And, uh, and I think that's what some of these kids that I try to, the kids that I work on or work with, I think the biggest thing is when you ask them, they don't have an inkling of what they really need to get better at. They all say, well, I could be a better route runner. Or I need to get faster. Being faster isn't going to make you necessarily a great receiver. Getting open, you got to get open. And that's being efficient, getting in and out of your cuts, creating separation, and then obviously catching the football and working on getting upfield right now. And it's a lot of these guys, like I said, they're in the weight room when they need to be out on the field. Devontae Adams said it great. They're doing all these Mickey Mouse cone drills. Does that relate or transfer to running routes? Not necessarily. The one I've seen you use in, I think, every single training session that I've had the privilege of watching and recording is with the six cones every five yards. And you definitely use it for a purpose of giving them a visual aid of where they need to load their weight, where they need to get out of their breaks. And then you definitely see, I think you see it the most with young athletes, but you see it on social media all the time high school athletes, elementary school athletes, where they're doing drills and you're just left wondering, what was the purpose of that? And I think that's also what some coaches fail to even show their athletes where they're just going through the motions. And then if they're asked by maybe an outsider watching what they're doing, they can't even verbalize what they're doing or why they were doing it sometimes. Oh, you're right. That's exactly right. I mean, it's, uh, it's crazy. I watch some of these videos and I'm like, you know, releases with karaoke's and running around cones and backpedaling in a circle and, you know, going forward and backward, you know, you, you don't ever use that movement in running a route. And, and um, for me, maybe I'm old school, but it's, it's frustrating. You can do different stuff. I mean, you know, you look at a ladder, you want to work on quick feet, doing different stuff. A ladder is still one of your better tools. 
for doing that. You know, and then there's some guys that don't need to do anything. They're, they're so gifted. They can just line up and play. And those are the guys that I envy because there's, you know, the Randy Mosses of the world that can just line up and run faster than everybody and just make plays because he's fast and he's great hand-eye coordination. And it's guys that, that, that are fun to watch as well. But they come, it's like Parcell said, receivers and football players come in all shapes and sizes. And, and you know, some of these coaches and some of these GMs, they all want big, fast, muscular guys. And, and there's a lot of guys that, that are small. The, the Tyreek Hills, the Tariq Cohen, I mean, that came onto the scene. Obviously, he's, he's been injured the last couple of years, but they do. They come in all shapes and sizes. Some of the best players. I got the fortunate to play with linebacker, was one of the smallest linebackers, London Fletcher, who in my mind is a Hall of Famer. And he wasn't the prototype looking linebacker when he got off the bus, but he had a great work ethic and he worked at his game every you know year in and year out. He had 200 tackles a year. There's, I think people are also obsessed with the what ifs in sports, especially the what ifs when it comes to players' careers. And this is a question that I've asked everyone else. I've had the privilege of interviewing Kevin, DeAndre, and also TJ was who do you think, who is the biggest what if player that you remember from your career, from coaching, maybe even recently? For me, as a Giants fan, growing up a Giants fan, it's always going to be Victor Cruz because I, I watched him as a 14 year old put up 14, 1500 receiving yards, win a Super Bowl. And then his career almost fell apart three years later where he was the, one of the biggest names in the NFL. So is that, is there anyone that sticks out to you, whether it be there, it doesn't have to be a receiver? could be running back or even on the other side of the ball on defense? What if, uh, for me, my biggest what if is um, Josh Gordon. I got an opportunity to coach him in the Pro Bowl. And to me, what if he didn't have a disease, have a, a drug problem? It was sad. And I talked to him about it. I mean, he was the most talented person, bar none, for size, speed, route running, hands, that I've ever seen on the football field. And I think he could have been one of the greatest to ever play the game. He was that good. And think about it, all the stuff that he, how many times he had been suspended, kicked out of leagues, brought back, people kept signing him. You know, yeah. I think I coached him in the 2000, I don't know what it was, Pro Bowl 13, 14. He, he was unbelievable. And I think he's my biggest what if. What if he didn't have it? He could, he's a Hall of Fame football player. He, he was one of the most talented a guy that at 6'4", 230, could run and get in and out of cuts like a guy that was 5'11", 195 pounds. He, he was that good, and uh, he could have been a tremendous football player for a long time. Well, there's a reason he's on his, you know, effectively sixth, seventh chance or whatever it may be, whatever that number is, it's higher than one, it's higher than two, that the Chiefs wound up signing him for this season in an effort to build a supporting cast around their Tyreek and Travis Kelsey. So that is all the questions I have. I greatly appreciate you doing this for me, especially since I know you just got out to LA for the suit for Super Bowl week and also to train and work with a bunch of different guys. So once again, thank you for doing this interview with me. And I hopefully I'm going to have it up within the next day on Saturday. Get it done, big guy. <laughs> pleasure. And I appreciate you having me, man. I always enjoy seeing you doing your thing, Tristan. Keep up the good work, bud. Thank you.